This morning is the uh, day we install uh, and ordain new classes of officers, and uh, it's fitting that a sermon be preached related to that subject. And so today, as you'll notice in that order of service, the sermons from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, which reads, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So ends the reading uh, of God's holy word. About 26 years ago, in July of 1994, a man named Jeff Bezos, with the help of $300,000 that he had gotten from other family members, he began a business in his garage, and he ultimately named it after the great river in South America, Amazon. And that was 26 years ago, the rest is history. But today, his office is in a high-rise building in Seattle and it's named Day One. The reason it's named Day One is to continually show the Amazon employees that they want everyone to approach each day as though it was the first day of that startup company with the same intensity and the same focus and the same energy of running a startup business. When we come to the church, in a sense, the qualification for elders is somewhat of a, a day one type of philosophy. It takes us back to first principles. What does God intend the church to be? If you were to just show up here from another planet and, and look at churches in, in North America, you might be very confused. They would have the name Christian on them, and yet they would look very different. I just don't mean stylistically, but even sometimes the message and use of the Bible and leadership and so forth. But what does, the, what does God intend for the church to be? And so the New Testament places strong emphasis on the importance of qualified officers in the local church. In fact, it may surprise you to, to understand that the New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders in a church than any other important church subject, even more than the Lord's Supper or baptism or spiritual gifts. The book of Titus uh, is named such because the Apostle Paul wrote it to a man named Titus, and he was a pastor on the island of Crete. If you know anything about geography, if you've been to that part of the world, Crete is large. It's 150 miles long. In some places, it's 35 miles wide. So even if you're on an island, unless you were on the coast, you, you would not know you were on an island. And the Apostle Paul had gone there and, and planted churches. And then he left, and he left Titus there to organize these congregations. And so these were baby Christians on the island of Crete and, Crete and all these various local churches. And therefore, as baby Christians, they were susceptible to false teaching. And so Titus needed to be on guard. 
and it needed strong Christian leaders in each church. And so the book of Titus, the short little book of Titus, is really a guidebook on how to do church. And so let's look at this one brief portion here that deals with the qualifications for elders. At first, when we see in verse 5 that there, there are no perfect churches, <laughs> and the reason is obvious and will always be the reason because uh, we are not perfect. We are all sinners in need of grace, and all churches are made up of sinners in need of God's grace. And so Paul has left Titus there, he says in verse 5, to put what remained in order, to straighten out, as one translation says, what was left behind. Now, if you, if you were to come into uh, my, uh, I, I study at home to prepare, I do study, but I, I, I have this room over a garage that when I first became a pastor, we put this room up there. And it's kind of cut off from the rest of the house, but most of the time, I mean, it looks like a bomb went off. Their books and papers, it's just depressing to walk in there. It's depressing for me, and I'm the one that made it that way. So if you came in and said, look, you've got to put some order to this. You've got, you've got to set this room in order. Well, it may take a day to do so, but, you know, throw away what needs to be thrown away. Organize, give some semblance of organization to all these books and papers and computer files and paper files and everything else. You understand. Everything's there, but it's just a mess. That's the word Paul uses about the churches on Crete. Titus, I left you there to bring some semblance of order to the mess that's there. So there are no perfect churches. There were not any in the New Testament times uh, and in the first century, and there are not any today. Second, we realize, though, that God does use imperfect churches with imperfect leaders to accomplish his will. We don't have to wait till perfection arrives at First Presbyterian Church or any other church. So he's appoint, to appoint, Titus is to appoint elders, and they're to have these characteristics then, just as we are to have these same characteristics now. So what are some of these? Just briefly, verses 6 to 8, and we won't spend a lot of time on each. But in a general sense, he says this person must be above reproach. He must be above reproach in his relationships and in his conduct. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. No one would qualify but blameless, not chargeable with some offense. And so this is a man who lives consistently with what he believes. Uh, and it's not how he sees himself, it's how others see him. This is very important. Because most of us cannot perceive ourselves correctly. We'll either be too harsh on ourselves or we'll be too easy on ourselves. So it's in the eyes of others is this person above reproach. The idea of being evaluated by others, a lot of people think, well, I, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, why should I have to worry about what others think about me? But for Christian leaders, uh, we should always be concerned about the testimony of the gospel because we are responsible for the spiritual welfare of others. Don't we hate this stuff with all the masks and all that? And we get so weary of trying to figure out what's true and what isn't and what's the motivation, this whole thing. And uh, I, early on, when we had to stop services, I remember getting, um, well, I remember having some opinions expressed to me 
about, well, this, you're just, you know, just questioning motives. I won't mimic anything, but, you know, it's compromise. It's bowing down to the states, doing all this. Where's that you're a coward, all that? And I thought, well, you're obviously not responsible for the lives of hundreds of other people. So why don't we just end this discussion right now? If I'm only concerned about myself, I may act different than for others. Well, what's the point? In church leadership, I'm not talking about quarantine now, I'm talking about we have to be concerned how is this person perceived by other people. This past week and the past two weeks, we've seen where certain mayors and governors have issued uh, laws or restrictions and so forth in their states or in their cities about mask wearing and, and people not gathering in restaurants and closing restaurants. And in some cases, they found to violate their own rule with travel and, and getting with groups of people and, and doing exactly opposite of what they said. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why is that so newsworthy? Because the world hates hypocrisy. And it also, it diminishes what the command is. Because then you think, well, if it's so important, why aren't you doing it? So in the church, if a person is to teach the Bible and, and represent God's word and the gospel, it's important that the life line up with that. Or what it does is say not only that that person is not living consistently with that, but it's not, it's not true. See, it's a reflection then on the message. So he's to be above reproach. And now he gives specific areas. Paul tells Titus he should be uh, above reproach in some specific areas. First of all, in his marriage. He's to be the husband of one wife. It's unlikely that Paul means that all church leaders must be married. Paul was not married when he wrote this. And the best evidence is that Titus was not married either. So it doesn't mean that he has to be the husband, the husband, of one wife. It means the hus if he's married, it should be to one woman. Polygamy was practiced in that day. John Calvin said this expressly condemns polygamy. Now there are other applications, but I don't have time for that now. But he has an exclusive and unquestioned devotion to his wife. That's there. There's no question as to whether this man is faithful to his wife or not. He also says he should be blameless in parenting. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, it's critical with this to understand that the language, the original language here means little child. If you're an elder and you've got a 40-year-old son or daughter who's, who's not living in accordance with, with God's word, that is not the time to evaluate whether you should be an elder or not. This is talking about little children. There was a particular word for that. Children at home, small ones. And he doesn't even say one child. It's just all of them, meaning that their example. What's this saying? Is, is, the, is the father engaged? Is he engaged with the spiritual development of his own children, or has he checked out? and he's oblivious to what's going on. The Puritans used to say that before a man could pastor or shepherd in the big church, he had to demonstrate faithfulness to pastor in the little church, in the family. So uh, every family is different, but we can see in a hurry whether a dad is engaged with his family or not, or whether he's just separated himself and said, y'all do what you want to do. And because if, if he's not engaged there, he won't be engaged 
in, in the larger church. And so his conduct is to be above reproach, it says in verses 7 and 8. He's not to do certain things. He's not to be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. But he should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Now these are uh, characteristics should be of all Christians. It's not as though okay, well, I don't want to be a church officer, therefore I can be quick-tempered, I can be a drunk, I can be violent. No, it's just saying that this is true of all believers, but especially, especially of an overseer in the church. Now, what's the gospel witness then that results from this in verse 9? He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that, it, that has been taught. What is this message? Well, we find it early in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's the doctrine of God's grace, the bad news, good news of how we're made right with God. He must hold that firmly and not let anyone pull it from his hand or let go of it. When a godly leader holds firmly to sound doctrine, that grace alone makes us right with God. He's able then to refute oppressors and to encourage believers. He's able to give instruction and sound doctrine. People are not encouraged by the life of a church leader whose, whose life is no different from the world or a person who gives the impression that they're trying to be something they're not. Uh, the church needs leaders who show that it's possible to live above the constraints of the world that we all face and at the same time be willing to demonstrate we're all dependent on grace. We're all dependent on God's grace every day. Never, never put me or anybody else in this pulpit on a platform. You will do yourself and your kids and anyone else no favor. When people see in the example of, of godly, godly dependence upon the Lord, that encourages their own spiritual growth. Then it says he'll be able to rebuke those who contradict, who contradict sound doctrine. This is in the latter part of verse 9. Paul is speaking specifically there about the island of Crete, and there were those who had arisen who, it says, observed certain aspects of Jewish customs and laws in order to be accepted by God. They were still enforcing a form of legalism. Obey these things, do these things, and God will accept you. And Paul says they're upsetting entire families, whole families. It shows that he's, Paul is not merely concerned about winning an individual, but winning families. It also shows this. What we believe has real-life consequences. It really does. I don't hear it too often now, but when I was uh, much younger, people would defend certain ideas saying, well, ideas never hurt anybody. Are you kidding? Every action has an idea behind it. Now, maybe you could say, well, they only had an idea. No one's been hurt yet. But... But ideas lead to actions. If they don't, why do we have advertising? I mean, that whole business is built on the idea that ideas have consequences. We want to put these ideas so that this person will act and purchase this. So a person recognizes that truth and falsehood have consequences. So a church officer, an elder, is concerned realizing that that truth is important why 
uh, just to check off boxes? No, because it affects people's lives. And what you believe has impact on yourself and on, and on families. So here's my summary. This is what I wrote down, my perspective. This isn't a definition of the church. It's a description of a local church, okay? One of the few things, one that, this is one of the few original ideas I ever have in a sermon, okay? This is what I wrote down. The local church is a group of sinners saved by grace who individually and collectively are becoming conformed to the image of Christ in their beliefs and actions. The church elders are appointed by the Lord to serve as examples of men experiencing the life-transforming power of the gospel. The result will be encouragement to God's people and refutation of opponents of the truth. So they serve as examples as what is possible, that it is possible to walk with Christ in this culture, that it is possible to lead your family in a godly way, that it's possible to do that. A few years ago, I, I listened to David McCullough's book, The Wright Brothers. A number of you here have read that, and we have a lot of fun discussing how good it is. But briefly, if, if you know much about the Wright brothers, uh, neither Wilbur or Orville had a college education. Uh, they, they had a high school education, and then they were self-educated in physics and math, just from their own reading and study. And so from their business of building bicycles, they began to experiment with gliders, and then they studied the physics of flight. They, they studied birds. They studied the shapes of wings. And older brother Wilbur wrote to the United States Weather Bureau in Washington to find out where the best place in the U.S. would be that had prevailing winds for them to try out flight. Certainly couldn't be around trees, and they needed landscape that was relatively flat. They received uh, a response that said there are three places in in America that, that fit that criteria, and they, they chose to go to Kitty Hawk on the Outer bank, Banks of, of North Carolina. And they would stay there two to three months each year uh, for three years to carry out studies and, and to experiment and with gliders and so forth. And then finally, on December the 17th, which was 97 years ago, uh, and only five men were there watching, at that time, Wilbur Wright became the first human being to fly a self-propelled airplane. One of the great turning points in human history, a particular day when that happened. But what stood out to me is that within four years, within four years of that historic flight, in France alone, there were more than 15 factories building airplanes. Isn't that amazing? All of human history up to that point, then he shows it's possible, and within a short period of time, they're being, in a sense, mass-produced. They're being built. All this came about because Orville and Wilbur showed what was possible. God puts elders and deacons in the local church to show that gospel transformation is possible. It doesn't, it's not flashy. Uh, it, on day one, Christianity is not flashy. It's modeling. It's seeing in another life uh, transformation. That's what it is. It's possible to be a growing Christian who, 
who daily depends on, on God's grace in your family, who daily depends on God's grace in the workplace. He, it's possible to have a Christ-centered life in the corporate world. It's possible to be in academics or medicine or anything else and live a Christ-centered life. It's possible to press on toward Christ-likeness amidst the trials and problems of life. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we, we thank you that the local church is not a human invention. You created it. And even here is our elder brother, the Apostle Paul, the missionary who had taken the gospel to the island of Crete, a very difficult place uh, with hard people, and yet it was transforming. And there was work to be done. And even here, that same gospel ultimately came here, and this church was planted so many years ago. So we ask that you'd help us to care about your local church, that you would help us to have realistic expectations and protect us from the evil one and all the ways his temptations can come in a variety of forms. Bless now the installation and ordination of, of these men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.